And now, back to David Spada and Elliot Harris for more Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. Welcome back to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com with David Spada and Elliot Harris. Next up, we have number 78 from the Cincinnati Bengals, Anthony Munoz, who played his entire NFL career with the Bengals, considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest, offensive linemen in NFL history. Here's our interview with Anthony Munoz. I'm getting old. I remember when you came into the league out of Southern Cal back in the uh, early 80s, and they were talking how great you were. Did you think it was going to be an easy transition from USC to uh, the NFL? No, I, I really didn't think so. Uh, you know, when you, especially, you know, I was well prepared uh, technically coming out of USC, but experience-wise, when you play one game your senior year, and all of a sudden you're you're in NFL camp, uh, you're wondering, okay, how's this going to go? Uh, I was really fortunate uh, when I got to Cincinnati to have a a really good offensive line coach uh, that really just kind of you know took me where I was and started to teach me. So I knew it wouldn't be easy, um, but. You know, one of the great things about uh, growing up in Southern California and going to USC, uh, I learned was uh, work ethic. I mean, you know, the coaches we had, John Robinson, Hudson Houck, and, and all the guys at USC, I mean, that's what it was all about, uh, working hard, trying to be the best. And uh, so, you know, I knew if I if I came in that, uh, you know, if I took that same uh, work ethic and, and really turned it up a few notches, something good might happen. But I didn't think it was going to be easy. Now, after the 1980 Rose Bowl, where you guys rallied to beat Ohio State, you worked out with Forrest Gre- against Forrest Gregg, the Bengals coach, and, and you knocked him on his butt. Did you think? <laughs> did you think? Okay, there go my chances of ending up with Cincinnati. You know, it's funny because, really, you know, having gone through the three knee operations in four years at SC, uh, Cincinnati was the only team that sent somebody out. And of course, as you mentioned, Forrest Gregg came out. Uh, put me through a pretty rigorous uh, about an hour and a half, two hour work, and at the end, you know, Forrest is still in pretty good shape, a young, uh, a young coach, and he, uh, you know, with that southern draw and that intimidating look. I mean, the guy was still about five, six five, about two, I don't know, two fifty, two sixty. He said, "Just react. I'm going to make some pass rush moves and just react." Well, my reaction as an offensive lineman when guy faked out and came in was to, to try to, you know, get his chest. And it, it worked right, hit Forrest right in the chest. And, I mean, it was like he went down, and back of his head hit. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I, I, I extended my hand. I apologized. And he just looked up at me and smiled and said, that's all right, Anthony. And I said, well, <laughs> yeah, I went from being just totally, uh, you know, frightened to say, well, maybe that was good that that happened. But, uh, no, it was – hopefully that helped out, and it appeared that it did. You went to USC, which has a history of great linemen, Ron Mix, Ron Yari. Was that the reason you chose USC, or were there other schools you were thinking about? No, I, USC was always a school I wanted to go to. To me, when I decided, uh, when I first fell in love with USC, I tell people, I don't know if it was the football tradition or if it was Traveler, the big white horse that uh, ran circles around the field every time they, they, they scored. But, uh, you know, I can't say that it was really um, – I was aware of the great linemen that played there that you mentioned, and of course I played with some great linemen, but it was more the tradition, the program. I mean, growing up 40 miles down the street, uh, uh, you know, I was always watching USC football on Saturday afternoon, uh, you know, so it was one of those things that it was just a school I fell in love with and the tradition and, and the and the program, and I used to see them in the Rose Bowl all the time, and I wanted that. 
What did you watch more, the players or the cheerleaders growing up? Well, I got to say, you know, at that, at that <laughs> time, uh, cheerleaders weren't big in uh, in my mind. It was like I said, I was I was about getting somewhere and get an opportunity to go to school and, and play football because financially, I don't think we would have been able to swing that. But yeah, it was uh, maybe watched a little bit my freshman year, but that was about it. Was the deciding factor in going to USC the ability to play baseball and skip spring practice? Well, it wasn't as much. I didn't even think about skipping spring practice. Uh, it was just baseball was my first love growing up as a kid. And, uh, you know, I always wanted to be a major league baseball player. And I started to get recruited, uh, recruited for football. And of course, most of the schools that I talked to, the selling pitch was that you can play baseball here. Well, USC had a track record of letting guys do that. And, uh, of course, the fact that I wanted to go there, um, and they were going to let me play baseball in addition to football. I mean, that was, that made it extra special and extra attractive because I was going to get able, I was going to be able to play a sport that I loved as a kid, uh, in college. So that was uh, the primary reason that uh, I was excited about. Another reason I was excited about going to USC because I was going to get to play baseball. And you won a championship with the baseball team. I did because of, uh, I, I talked a little about my injuries. The one year I played, which was my sophomore year in college, the year I played, uh, my football season healthy and all the way through, I played baseball. And that was Rod Dato's last, uh, World Series victory. Uh, so I was able to be part of that team. I, I was able to make the trip to Omaha and win a national championship in baseball. Were you any good hitting? Now you're a very good pitcher. Could you hit at all? Well, I started to hit, um, I hit pretty well in high school, um, and then when I got to college, before I became a relief pitcher, I was playing first base and uh, and, and DHing a little bit, so I was still able to hit some. In fact, I'll never forget uh, my first game as a as a JV player. That's where I first dressed up. My first game, we're playing Cal Poly Pomona, and I'll never forget the guy. First at bat in college, guy hung the curveball, and I hit a home run, which was pretty exciting. Hit a couple others. I mean, I wasn't a great hitter, but I could hit the ball pretty well. And you won a championship in football, too, at USC. Did any player ever do that, winning in baseball and football? Well, uh, there's a, a player who was a backup. I believe it was the second or third, third string quarterback at USC in the early 70s. I, I believe his name was Rob Adolph. Uh, he was on the 72-74, uh, the two national championship football teams. And he was a very good baseball player. But the rule going to USC, if you're going to play both, is if you're on a football scholarship, you you have to go through spring tra- practice your freshman year, and then you can play football. Well, the four years he was at SC, the baseball team won four consecutive national baseball championships. And so he, he won the 72-74 football. He had to go through spring practice. The first year the baseball team won the championship, but he played on the last three. So that's you know i'd have to check that out but i'm pretty sure that's accurate so he won two football and three baseball what was playing for rod dado like well coach data was unbelievable the, the thing about him he had so much baseball knowledge i mean i'll never forget i'd be on the bench charting pitches during a game or just sitting there watch and he was constantly up and down the bench questioning asking you questions situations I mean, he made you, as a player on the bench, uh, really stay in tune to what was going on with the game. Of course, personality-wise, the guy was just the greatest. I mean, you know, he was he was um, just unbelievable. I'm thankful. Uh, I was very fortunate to play for Rod Dato and John Robinson while at USC. 
And you had a great, like you said, a great coach in uh, Forrest Gregg with the Bengals there. When you made that first Super Bowl, do you think, you know what, this is pretty easy here in the NFL? I thought maybe we were going to have a run. You know, it was, uh, yeah, I was used to, to playing in Rose Bowls at SC. I figured, man, we, we, first Super Bowl, my second year, we might uh, put a few here together. But you, you quickly uh, are aware that how difficult it is to get to you know, consecutive Super Bowls and to me, even though they didn't win one, that's what uh, is so impressive about the Buffalo Bills getting to four straight. I mean, it's so hard uh, getting back the following year after you've been to one. Yeah, and, and Forrest Gregg's tenure with the Bengals was not all that long. And right. The next thing you know, you have Sam White as your coach. What was he like? Sam White was unbelievable. I, I still believe he was one of the greatest offensive minds around. Um, you know, what we did offensively was, was amazing. I mean, he was the guy that brought the, you know, no huddle offense, the attack offense. Uh, we had our offense coded in two, three different languages. I mean, just the different stuff that we did. And he put together a great offensive staff with Bruce Coslett and uh, Jim McNally and Jim Anderson. I mean, it was just amazing. So I enjoyed I enjoyed both coaches. Totally different uh, styles of coaching. Forrest Gregg was more the CEO managing both sides of the football. He had his coordinator on both sides. They ran the, the show offensively and defensively. He had his plan for the team, where Sam Weiss was more the head coach, offensive-minded, involved with the offense. But, yeah, Sam was an amazing coach. I still have a great relationship with Sam. He comes up to my foundation event every summer. Uh, but, yeah, he he made football as an offensive player very fun. And for a, a former offensive lineman to catch uh, some touchdowns, he made it extremely uh, enjoyable. Did you have to politic for that to let him make you a receiver, or did he? It was that his no, idea? No, <laughs> it was his idea, which I thought he was a little crazy at the time, putting an offensive lineman to catch a football. But after that first catch, it was kind of like, oh, this is pretty nice. Uh, so, no, it was one of those things that uh, his rookie year, he started bringing two extra offensive linemen in to tackle and move myself and another lineman out to the tight end. And, uh, yeah, he just started designing these plays, and they worked. So we're looking to argue. And and most of your receptions went for touchdowns. So, you know. Well, yeah. the impressive thing, the impressive thing was the yards per catch. I think I averaged a little over a yard per catch. Very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> you played with two different quarterbacks uh, style-wise, and Ken Anderson and Boomer Sison. Was it difficult adjusting to a different quarterback after – playing with Kenny Anderson? Not really. Uh, both were extremely smart. You know, people look at right-handed, left-handed, blindside backs. I mean, things really don't change as far as formations. Most teams are predominantly right-handed, meaning formations are usually strong right side. So uh, that didn't change a whole lot. Um, the, really, the difference was just the, the whole personality. Uh, you know, Boomer was a, a lot more outgoing, a lot more verbal, uh well, Kenny was more of the silent assassin. I mean, the guy was one of the most accurate quarterbacks, and he didn't say a whole lot. But when he said something, it was uh, pretty f- profound, and Boomer was more verbal. So, uh, But, you know, it really wasn't, like I said, uh, basically running the same offense, um, you know, being the left tackle, rarely had a tight end over there with both guys, even though one was right-handed and one was left-handed. So the adjustment wasn't that that different. Now, once upon a time, you also were a punter. Did you ever try to uh, con- convince, the, <laughs> convince the coaches you ought to give you a try at that? Well, actually, we used to have uh, Pat McAnally, who was an excellent punter for us for years. 
uh, we'd go on the road. The Friday practice was always kind of a, you know, light workout, just going out. We'd always have these punting contests and I got word from up top that uh, they didn't want me punting any. So, uh, that was ended quickly by the head man. Anytime Paul Brown said something, he just, but no, I enjoyed punting. I actually punted and kicked in high school and enjoyed it, enjoyed it. But, uh, it didn't go beyond that other than uh, a few coffin corner competitions and then that ended quickly too. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever think to yourself, why do we have to keep playing the San Francisco 49ers in the Super Bowl? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I kept thinking, why do we have to play them Super Bowl and regular season? I think I, I, I went hitless. Uh, I think I was 0 for 5 against them Super Bowl regular season. Uh, so, yeah, one number 16 uh, is a guy that uh, when I have nightmares, it usually includes number 16 wearing that 49ers uniform, one Joe Montana. You mentioned Paul Brown, the Bengals uh, owner, legendary character in the NFL. What was he like? Paul was uh, regimented. It was on the same schedule all the time, uh, very, very much involved in what was going on, was around, was very connected uh, with the team, with the staff, was very engaging with the players. Uh, you know, one thing we could always count on in the locker room, he would usually come in the locker room and uh, just kind of interact with us and the thing I loved about it, uh, questions led to stories, and we heard a lot of stories. So, um, you know, there was there was a perception that he was a, you know, they referred to as a tight-fisted patriarch in one of the the radio <laughs> shows here. But he was he was a, I mean, you, when you first meet him, and then you become a football um, fan and learn about history, it's amazing what the guy, very innovative, what he brought to the NFL. And, and that was the impressive thing about it is that, you know, here we had a guy for, what, 10, 11 years of my career that I was around him that brought so much to this, this game and added so much to it. And uh, it was just great being around the guy. Was there a defensive lineman that gave you the most trouble? Um, you know, one guy, I mean, I never really feared anybody or, or went into a game saying, I don't want to play against this guy. But one of the guys that probably wasn't the most fastest and the, I mean, you know, you, you probably think like a Bruce Smith or Fred Dean Lee, but those are all great guys. And I mean, they had their times, but Mike Bell from Kansas City was a guy that I, I think if there's a guy I could never figure out, I couldn't figure him out because he wasn't the quickest, the fastest the biggest, the strongest, but he just had some, you know, he, he just had a way of going about doing his job. Given your track record of injuries in college, were you pleasantly surprised by your durability in the NFL? No, because um, I had four years of high school where I played three sports, from football to basketball to baseball, four years, never missed a game. Uh, in college, it was just one of those things where I was in the wrong place in the wrong time. I mean, from, you know, posting a guy up and a 300-pound lineman falling on my leg and, you know, another guy. So all three were kind of these freak accidents. So, of course, it, it was a concern of, of many people. Um, when you go through injuries like that, you want to make sure that, uh, that you're, you know, you're physically fit. And I, and I took that uh, very seriously. So the fact that I was a workout fanatic and, uh, weight training and, and conditioning, um, I, I didn't really think about it. I knew that it was part of the game, but uh, I, I can't really say that it surprised me uh, because of my track record in high school and then, uh, you know, one of those things I was just uh, wrong place at the wrong time. What is it with you USC guys becoming actors? You had back in the day John <laughs> Wayne, Frank Gifford, OJ, yourself. I might be missing a couple. Well, you know, you're out there um, – in that uh, crazy place uh, close to Hollywood, and 
you know, USC is known for their, uh, their, their t- TV and, you know, you got the George Lucas, uh, school of theater there on campus and you have, you know, so it's one of those things that you just get some opportunities and, uh, is, uh, young guys that don't know a whole lot. You say, well, let's check it out. It might be fun, you know, and it's, you do it and you say, wow, sitting around all day just doesn't get it. But it is fun while you're doing it. You get to meet people like, you know, Charles Bronson and, uh, Ed Harris and, you know, guys like Scott Pollan and Scott Glenn. And, you know, so it's pretty cool being able to, to meet individuals like that. When you look at NFL offensive linemen today, do you say if I was playing the game, I'd have to put on about 100 pounds more than, than when I played? No, um, I would probably not be much heavier than my last year. My last year I was about three. I would probably try to get about 310, 315 because I still think uh, – if you're working as hard in the weight room, you have the strength. I think as a tackle, you can play at 315, 320. So I, I don't think I'd have to put on 100, maybe 20, 30 at the most. How did you feel when you found out you're going in the Hall of Fame? Unbelievable. I mean, it's very humbling, uh, a thrill, exciting. It's one of those things where you say, man, all along you think, okay, Bart Starr, Deacon Jones, Gail Sayers, Merlin Olson, Anthony Munoz? Ah oh, man, this is this is pretty exciting. But it's it's it, you know the fun thing for me too is I, I you know I grew up in Southern California, played at USC, played my entire NFL career in Cincinnati, and then I actually got the word that I was going in the Hall of Fame in San Diego back in California. So it's kind of like it went full circle where I got the actual uh, announcement was back in California. But uh, even now I've been in 16 years and it's still kind of crazy thinking that. Uh, you know, I'm in the Hall of Fame. I was up there this last Thursday, Friday, doing a camp, youth camp on Thursday, an event Friday, and you know, you walk around the place and you're like, oh, my goodness, this is this is crazy. I mean, it's still it's still hard for me to believe at times. Can you explain the Canton experience to people who have not been there? Wow, it's uh, I can give it my humble explanation, but until you experience. Thursday through Sunday, it's hard because, first of all, the city is unbelievable. Does an unbelievable job. I mean, from all the events to the volunteers, first class. I mean, it's just totally first class. You know, from the the first reception we have on Thursday night to, you know, the induction ceremony to the game. It's just one after another. I mean, it's, it's like you're out in the public at the parade with you know two three hundred thousand people lining the streets driving. I mean, it doesn't matter who you played for. It doesn't matter what jersey the fans are wearing that are lining the parade. They're just clapping for you and appreciate you. I mean, I'm a Bengal driving down. You can have a, a group of Steeler fans and Steeler jerseys, you know, clapping and rooting for you, uh, which is doesn't happen when you're in Three River Stadium or Heinz Field now. <laughs> but, um, you know, to to the, the Nitsky luncheon when it's, you know, it's just all Hall of Famers in this one room, just sharing passion and sharing stories and you know, honoring the new inductees uh, to the Friday night uh, event at the at the convention center where the um, guys are getting their their jackets. I mean, it's it's just one of those things that if you get a chance, you have to to go up and experience the entire weekend um, because it's hard to really just to share what it's what it really is like. But it's it's just amazing. What surprised me is when they said that parade is the second biggest parade behind Macy's. I'm like, you got to be kidding. And then going there, I'm like, they were right. Oh, it's huge. I mean, it's like you go down the street and 
And like I said, it's like jerseys from every team in the league. And, I mean, it's early in the morning, people out there, total families, you know, and it's just, I've never been to the Macy's. I've been to the Rose Bowl Parade, but this is huge. I mean, this, you know, the Hall of Fame Parade is unbelievable. What was writing the acceptance speech like? I, I imagine it's like uh, having two defensive linemen coming at you at one time. Well, you know, it, it was easy for me because you hopefully most people don't forget where they've come from, and I've not forgotten where I've come from. So it was easy for me to really a timeline of thank yous of those individuals that have made made it made it happen for me. You know, I, I, I chuckle even today when, when you hear about self-made men. I mean, this guy is self-made. He's doing this. I've not met anybody that's self-made. I mean, everybody that is successful has a supporting cast from when you're young through when you're an adult. And, and that was the easy and fun thing for me is outlining those that helped me along my journey. And uh, so it was fun for me. Uh, the, the tough thing was... Hopefully you didn't forget any. I didn't forget anybody, you know, along the way. That's that's the one tough thing about it because there's so many. There were so many people in my life that helped me, from family members to coaches to teachers to friends. I mean, it's just like uh, when you write it and you finish it, you know, okay. Hopefully I have not left anybody. That's that was the only tough thing about writing the speech. How did your foundation get started? Well, it's something that I always had a passion for. Uh, unlike a lot of guys that start their foundations while they're playing or early on, I didn't want to do that. Uh, first of all, I cannot see being involved in a foundation while I was playing because I, I was a husband, a father, and then playing. I wouldn't have had enough time to be engaged in my foundation. With my names on something, I'm sitting in my office right now. I'm engaged. I know exactly what's going on, what we're doing, where the money's coming from, where it's going. Uh, you know, I know our audits, our, you know, our tax forms, not everything about it, but I know our numbers. Uh, so I waited actually eight years after I retired to make sure I had my mission in place, my partners in place, because when I did it, I wanted to do it right. And uh, so we're in our 13th year. We've raised about $11 million. Uh, we're getting to impact a lot of kids. Uh, and I just had a, I had a vision, a dream of helping kids the way I was helped growing up. Kids that are very talented, very gifted, not all athletes but have tremendous gifts, but need a little assistance, need a little encouragement, a little love. And, and so that's when I started our foundation 13 years ago. Can you compare and contrast your Hall of Fame experience to your final game where they had the halftime ceremony? Um, you know, the, the, one, the one thing that made the halftime experience so great was that their total, just about the entire stadium is filled with Bengals fans, guys and gals that have watched, you know, most of my games over the career where when you're the Hall of Fame experience, I mean, that's the pinnacle of an NFL football career, professional football career, but you know that there's just, it's kind of, they're not all Bengals fans. So the fact that I got that uh, experience at the home stadium that I played all 13 years was really extra special in front of my hometown. Uh, and then the Hall of Fame, of course, is very, very special, but it's a different setting, you know, and, and I, I guess that's the only difference is that you're in front of those that have been rooting you on all 13 years, and then up there you're in front of just football fans of all teams. One last question. Is there is the reason you stayed in Cincinnati to live is it because of the ribs at Montgomery Inn? Well, there's the ribs at Montgomery Inn, the Grater's Ice Cream, the Skyline Chili, just name them all, and it's 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 all there. I mean, you know, 
Sure, California, I could get plenty of In-N-Out burgers and some great Mexican food, but here the Mexican food is getting better. Uh, finding some, but yeah, I mean, can you imagine having dinner, having some ribs, maybe a few Coney dogs from Gold Star or Skyline, and then topping it off with some nice uh, blackberry chocolate uh, Grater's ice cream? Nothing like it. And then, then your you know your late night late night snack, you just go across the street to your United Dairy Farmers and get a little snack there, maybe a shake. So. There's some there's some good eats here in Cincinnati. <laughs> no one could say offensive linemen aren't smart. <laughs> we know where to find. We're smart enough to know where we find food. And you kept your figure with all that food too. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed that interview with Anthony Munoz. We would like to thank him and our previous guest Frank Cush. Also like to thank our executive producer Dave Olson. Hope you enjoyed the show today. Tune in again next time to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com.